This past uh, year, we enrolled this past, I don't remember the season, but we put Levi, I guess fall in my high school was a soccer sport. Is that still the way it is for the most part? Um, just shows I don't know a lot about soccer. Levi, for the first time, uh, got to play soccer. It was cool. The league was ran by a Mill Church member. Three of the coaches, in addition to this league director from the Mill, were coaches of teams in the soccer team. A lot of the kids attended the church, so it was great to go and watch um, my kid, other Mill kids. Just nice to interact. Kids were funny. Um, I didn't play soccer myself. Um, but it seemed to me that the coaches had really three priorities that I want to highlight um, by observance. The first was to get the kids to go the same direction, okay? As a six-year-old, that's kind of important thing to teach. You know, sometimes they'll score in the opposite goal, and you kind of catch yourself being like, no, yay, okay, and you encourage them, and it's all about that, and for them getting a feel for the game and whatnot. The second thing that coaches really try to get uh, kids to do in Levi's age group is to not leave the field too early. Not leave the field too early because kids get hot or kids decide that they're not interested. Occasionally you'll see a kid reach one into the field and just see something incidentally that catches his or her attention in the distance and just keep going right past the goal and on to whatever it is that that they're attracted to. Um, The third job that I noticed, um, and of course I'm oversimplifying a coach's role, um, but was to play their positions. That's an important part of the game of soccer and many other games. Um, So that was kind of the toughest, I would argue, uh, objective of our coaches because it was kind of like throwing... Uh, a chew toy in a pen with a bunch of Labrador retrievers, you know, and they were just all happy and wanted to be a part of it. And so they just chased the ball. These kids did all over the field. There wasn't a sense of this is my territory. This is my space in which um, to operate. Levi, um, he even found uh, an opportunity to connect with his friend Danielle from first grade during the soccer game. Danielle didn't want to talk, but Levi did. So while she played soccer, he would run after her and engage her in conversation. And that was just the thing that he liked to do. Here's, get to the point, Pastor. Here's the point. The point is that in today's text, the Apostle Paul seems to be coaching a new church planter in these three areas. He seems to be saying um, to a group ranging from retired people to young men to homemakers to business leaders, and he's, he's trying to get them to do the same darn three things that Jocelyn, Adam, Dan, and Nick were doing. He's trying to get them to go the same direction. He's trying to get them Uh, not to leave the field too early. And he's trying to get them to play their what? Their respective positions. Let's pray. Father, as we look at uh, Titus chapter 2 today, I just pray that you would encourage us all as a team of faith-filled believers to go the same direction. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us all. These are fundamentals of the faith. 
not to quit too early. And Lord, I pray that you would equip us to play the right positions. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 to you at this time. And I believe we have some help, and we'll have it on the screen in case you left your Bible at home. Here's what Paul said to Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what's he talking about, uh, sound doctrine? What does that mean? He's saying, teach the gospel. Teach a crucified, risen, resurrected king. That's what you're supposed to teach. Teach everything in according with sound doctrine. Make it about Jesus. Okay? Then he says, verse 2, Older men, remember we talked about positions. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women. I'm going to talk to older men and older women, and I will not identify who you are this morning. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to do the following. Love your husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Boy, today's sermon's going to be interesting. Kind, submissive to their husbands. Oh boy, you got your money's worth today. That the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a... Notice that the young men, their list of things is one item long. Just focus on this, guys, please. Let me keep this simple for you. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, Titus, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. For the grace of God has appeared. Remember, that's the theme from last week, this book. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You could read that last verse 11, because the grace of God has appeared. In other words, um, do these things because the grace of God has been revealed to, to you or in response to the goodness or the grace of God. So this is what um, we talked about last week, this very same theme. Uh, today is a variation of sorts, and there are different groups of addressees. And so I hope this is a very uh, practical message. Um, everything Paul is saying in your life ought to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the way Rick Warren put it probably two decades ago. Our faith is not, and I'm paraphrasing, a badge on our sash. 
beside the soccer badge and beside the career badge and beside the hobbying badge and beside the investment badge and beside every other hat that we wear in life. Rick Warren rightly pointed out, our faith is the sash on which every badge hangs. Every other badge has no place to hang without the sash. The faith is what penetrates all of life. And so Paul's saying Christianity is not a to-do list. He's saying it's not this group of things to work harder at. It's not a list of observances and and rituals. He's saying from, from start to finish, Christianity is a response to the grace of God. It's that simple. When we're moved by his grace, we act different. We look different. We talk different. And here's how that translates, he says. He starts out, teach the older men. Is he saying that all older men are not temperate and are not worthy of respect and are not self-controlled and and are not sound in the faith? Of course, he's not saying that. He's saying in general, these are some things that older men struggle with. Who would Paul classify as old? There is an ancient uh, rabbinic piece of literature that said a young man in this time period was considered to be 18 to 39 years of age. Um, Actually, I completely just made that up (laughs) because I'm 37. (laughs) We don't have any idea. Um, what the categories were of, of young and of, of old. So I'll let your, you, yourself, you, maybe you're an optimist, put yourself in a, in a category that you ought not to, but hopefully you will tune in uh, to both because it's instructive to either category, both the uh, instruction to the older and to the uh, younger. We don't know how Paul defines categories. Here's what he says to the older men. Uh, it's funny, I had Jeff Terrace in the first service. Many of you know our local uh, FCA um, director. And uh, I, I told Jeff he show, in front of everybody that he showed up for the perfect Sunday when I was reading the verse, teach the older men. And he got a giggle out of it. He was gracious. So what do, what do older men typically struggle with? Um, he says a number of things, but there's one that I want to hone in on because there's one that is exceptional when compared to the other items um, that are shared by multiple categories that he's speaking to. There's one that he says to older men in particular, in other words. In this one, he says, endure. Or as uh, we read it uh, in the ESV, in steadfastness was the, was the way that it was put. Why does the Apostle Paul tell uh, Titus to instruct other men to endure. Why does he do that? Why is there a need for that? Here is why. 
Because in general, one temptation that older men face, once they reach the third third, let's say, of their lives, is they coast in the faith. They coast. They feel they've done enough. They've raised their kids. They've served in the local church. They've saved all the money they need to save. They're tired. Um, And it's a temptation for those older gentlemen. I think this is the first time a, a sermon at the Mill Church has ever addressed older gentlemen in particular. But, but Paul is saying a temptation is for them to think for themselves, or I should say of themselves, their interests, their hobbies. Sometimes serving the body was, was unsettling or maybe even looked down upon in, in kind of a snooty way. I've, I've been there. I've done that. I'm more refined now. I'm more relaxed now. And, of course, it can turn into grumpiness. What's the name of the title? Uh, Movie title, Grumpy Old Men. There's a reason for that. Many either go in one direction or the other when they age. Either they become sweet and docile and respectful and humble, or they become absolute grumps. And there is nothing in between, it seems. Paul saying, Titus, young church planter, remind the older men that when, when I said, follow me, I was not referring to the pre-retirement period. They can't retire from the faith. They can retire from their vocation, but they need to endure when it comes to to kingdom things. Tell them quit being so comfortable in their old age. Tell them think about the next generation that they ought to be investing in. Encourage them not to live the rest of their lives just to collect toys and fish and play golf. Have them advance the kingdom of God. Don't allow them to quit serving and training and leading and educating. There's value in them. If it's up to them, they'll stop. Encourage them to persevere. Don't let them get self-absorbed. Don't let them get cynical and talk about how, how off the younger generations are. My promises have not ceased to be true. I'm still calling young people. I have not given up on them. Tell the older generation that too. Paul reminds them, tell them be temperate. Be moderate. In in other words, don't let them give themselves excessively to to things that numb them, like like alcohol. Abusing alcohol is, is what people with no purpose do. They have purpose. Is Jesus alive or isn't he? Remind them of that. Titus. Do you know if you're... All of us will be, my my dad rightly reminds me that he's nice to me because one day I'll pick his nursing home. 
But do you know that there's a lot of saints and nursing homes who are still advancing the kingdom of God? They're immobile, but they're praying for people who are immobile to be filled with the Spirit and doing the work of the ministry and evangelizing the lost. They devote what little they can give to the great cause of prayer and engaging the creator of the universe and petitioning things of him that are often bigger movers in the global sense than, than, than the things that people with young legs under them can accomplish. I read a story of an 83-year-old man. This is what he said. I want to meet this guy. I've done three church plants and I feel like I have another couple in me. Isn't that remarkable? On the lips of an 83-year-old guy who's lugged stuff in and out of a trailer. Just wants the lost to know Jesus. Can I encourage you older folks to go to El Salvador Can I encourage you to serve a widow in your neighborhood? Can I encourage you to mentor a young person? Henry Ward Beecher said, it's not the going out of port, but the coming in that determines the success of a voyage. Paul's saying, finish strong, older men. Then he turns his attention to the older women. He says, don't slander. Be reverent. Dr. Idle, the seminary professor in North Carolina, not far from where I grew up, said this, older women can sometimes quit caring what people think. So they lose their filters on speaking their mind, begin talking badly about people. He says, when you're young, you have two things that you inevitably lose over age natural physical beauty and filters. And when those things are gone, if you have an ugly spirit, there is nothing that masks it anymore. And I might add that by contrast... There are some women who appear to grow in beauty as they age because their character has grown with their age. Character is more beautiful, ladies, than physique. I don't know about you. um, I really want, it's like one of my goals in life, to be a sweet beautiful, caring codger. Is it one of your goals? Are you moving in that direction? I think Shannon's farther along than me because people actually refer to my wife now as being sweet. I don't know that anyone's ever used that adjective to describe me. Honest to goodness. People call Shannon sweet all the time. Here's how it will come, ladies, your sweetness. 
Character will come when you are amazed at the grace of God. When you understand that though guilty, you are forgiven. Though unlovable, God loves you. You know what I mean. I know that's, you can't use that description. Humanity is unlovable, vile, sinners, etc. We, our, our sinful nature is ugly. And yet God chose to love us. So it doesn't come by um, gossiping, of course. And um, you can take credit when you're beautiful at age 20 because everyone is beautiful at age 20. But when someone says you're beautiful at age 80, that is a compliment to your faith in Jesus Christ. We'd be remiss to not look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. This is the one everyone uses to throw stones at Christianity on all the talk shows. And so train, Paul says to Timothy, or rather to Titus, train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Let's talk about that in particular, along with being submissive to their husbands. Look, some say, and some preach, which is a shame. The Bible teaches male dominance. How antiquated is that? Some criticize. How chauvinistic is is that? Let's talk about it. Working at home biblically cannot mean that women are not permitted to work outside the home because there are multiple places in Scripture where women are condoned for doing so. Um, Lydia is one of my favorite examples. She's this like fashionista that we see in the early church in the book of Acts. And she owns homes in multiple places, has a lucrative business, loves Jesus Christ with all of her heart. Well, what is the Bible talking about when it says be homeward focused? Here's what Paul means by that. He says there's a tendency for young women, especially also for young men, to be lured away from God-given gifts and responsibilities by the promise of fulfillment someplace else. There's no denying any honest man will tell you this that God places certain skills in the toolbox of a mother. I will tell you that when I return from work, our kids have clean diapers. They are well-rested. They are not sugared up. And in general, their well-being is off the charts. When Shannon comes home from work, typically their diapers hang about a half inch lower. Things are disheveled. Shannon has a homeward bent naturally that I just do not have. I'll give you another example. I pass Brian Forrest's house, farmer in our church. Every time I come to Marshfield, I go through the country. And one year, I pass his house, and there's like six beautiful, ornate hanging baskets 
on his porch. How did that happen? Like, did Brian just all of a sudden get an inclination to buy some hanging baskets and water them and and watch them grow on his front porch? Well, no. What happened? He married Elaine. That's what happened. And all of a sudden, there's a homeward focus. Women have such an intention to to detail. Again, generally speaking, and, and, and I will say, that, that there's just something inside of them that God has set in a way that he designed them, and that often requires women to sacrifice other things. Oftentimes, she can't give as much time to a career. She may, in some cases, give up a career altogether, but God is reminding us through the Apostle Paul, young women, your primary goal should not be to fulfill yourself and your own ambitions. A few years ago, this lady named Linda Hirschman, she was on Good Morning America, and she said this, I quote, homemakers are living lesser lives. And in case you haven't noticed, that is the trend of culture. She believes, as Linda, that happiness, true happiness, comes from self-actualization or accomplishing everything that you set out to accomplish in your life. But think about where that leads, ladies. If fulfillment is all about self-actualization, then everybody, everybody stands in the way of you self-actualizing, including potentially your husband. And eventually that becomes a perturbance. And kids become an accessory, not children that we lay down our lives for. And what Paul is telling Titus is say to the young women, remind them that God did not call us to use people for our own personal gain. God called us to give our lives up for other people. Think about Jesus. How did he find fulfillment? One act of service that primarily he's known for. What what is it? He washed his disciples, what? Feet. Um, I don't know that wiping bottoms is altogether different. It is a noble task of service that God calls an individual to. Happiness is found when we're living under the Father's approval. God has assigned us the task of raising a family. We find fulfillment in that, those of us who have kids. So, and I'll tell you that it applies to dads too. Um, there are a lot of things, uh, if I might just take a tangent from, from the text, because he's not talking to young gentlemen, but if I might talk to young gentlemen uh, this morning, um, that we want to do, but we cannot do, because we have kids. Peter Kreeft, um, an author, was asked the question, what's your favorite book you've ever written? And this is how he responded, I love this answer. The one I did not write when my kids were young. 
What did he realize? He realized he only had one season to raise his kids. Dads, you only have one season to raise your sons and daughters. The other night, the, the grass was... <laughs> oh, I make it a little emotional. Um, the grass was knee-high. That's, that's always an expression, of course, but it was high. At her house, and uh, Levi was begging me to have a, a pillow fight with him, and and I said, Levi, I can't. I got to mow the grass. The daylight's fading. And the next day they were calling for rain. And and he went over and just kind of laid on the floor. And, and right as I about walked out the door, I caught him out of the corner of my eye. Not in a pouty way. Um, he wasn't being, being fun. Just in this really disappointing way. In a way that communicated to me like, that's the answer I get every time. You know, and this doesn't off. This doesn't often happen, but the Spirit of God spoke to me in an almost audible way. Why? Why did he do that? He did that because he loves Levi. And he wants what's best for Levi. And he told me that Levi is in need of affection and I need to cancel my self-centered plans and spend time with him. And the point of this story isn't to tell you that I'm noble in some way because Again, most of the time, I'm not noble. And I deny at times the need or avoid or look the other way from the needs of my kids to do something that I think is more important. And I've, and, but on this occasion, thankfully, I got it right. And I picked him up off the floor and I said, Levi, I'm not going to mow. And he said, why? And I said, because I love you more than I love the lawn. And he said, He's very analytical. Um, he said, so dad, what, what you mean is if you had a choice between long grass and a happy family or short grass and a sad family, well, dad, you would choose long grass and a happy family. And I said, Levi, this is exactly what I would choose. And we had the best pillow fight. It's awesome. When, church family, you get to heaven and everything you have lived for is turned off, there will be one light still on, and that is the light of faithfulness. Were you faithful or weren't you faithful with what God asked you to do in this life? Accomplishments will all fade away. We do not, I don't know who told you otherwise, we do not get rewarded for our accomplishments in heaven. We get rewarded for our faithfulness in saying yes to what it is that God asked us to do. It does not matter how wealth, 
wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how much you accumulate. It doesn't matter how, how, how successful you are at your hobby. It does not matter how big of a man your buddies think you are. What matters is whether or not we have said yes to what God's asked of us. That is the only thing that will be left standing. That phrase, homeward focused, wasn't controversial enough. Let's look at women subjecting themselves to their husbands. What does that mean, practically? Well, I'll begin with this. Marriage is this beautiful dance that ought to be a reenactment of a single moment in history when Jesus Christ laid down his life for his church. He is the groom. The local church is the bride. And the Apostle Paul says that a husband ought to imitate Jesus Christ and give himself up, even if until the point of death, for his wife. Having said that, I'll say that we husbands, if we ought to lay down our wives, ought to be open to ideas such as deferring to her on where she likes to eat (laughs) or deferring to her on what place she wants to vacation to. It's about reenacting the love that's within the Trinity, God, Father, and Spirit, this self-giving dance that they're having. It has nothing to do with superiority. Matt Chandler rightly said it this way, a husband sacrificially loving his wife and a wife submitted to her godly husband creates a relationship that the world would never look at and say how disgusting and archaic. See, a lot of people are turned off to the idea of headship because it's been taught wrong. If we love our spouse, we will put his or her needs ahead of our own needs. I have never, I'm not a great marital counselor. I often refer to somebody in Wausau. But in every single marital session I've been in, I can tell you I have never encountered a single couple that was in strife or an impending divorce because of selflessness in their marriage. Ever. Don't anticipate that I ever will. It's always because one, if not both parties, put themselves before the other. Always. Every time. In verse 6, Titus, or rather Paul, tells Titus to turn his attention to younger men. This is our last one. Be self-controlled. That's all he encourages them to be. Younger men, self-controlled. Could that be, because if we boil down to the Achilles heel of nearly every young man, it's controlling himself? That's the real issue for Young gentlemen, we're ruled by our desires, by our passions, 
by our pleasure. If we learn, young men, to control our passion and our pleasures and our pants, and I could continue with the alliteration, we can become mighty men of God. But he says, if you don't learn to control yourself, you won't. Proverbs twenty five twenty eight says, a man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. We don't have many fortified cities. It seems like an outdated analogy, but just work with the ancient imagery just for a moment. We're talking about a time period in which groups of people crossed rivers, crossed mountain ranges, and attacked and invaded and took over swaths of land from other groups of more vulnerable people. It doesn't matter how smart the citizenry is. It doesn't matter how valiant the troops are. If there are no walls, they were at risk. And, and the wisdom here is that we have to, as young men, put up walls so that we will withstand the attacks of Satan. And that begins, um, young men, just so you know, not with uh, media. It doesn't begin with an extramarital affair. It begins in our minds. That's where the battleground is and has always been. Martin Luther rightly pointed out, we cannot keep birds from flying over our head. In other words, lustful thoughts are going to enter the head of every young man, and I would insert all men. But he said, we can keep them from building a nest in our hair. In other words, we can't keep the initial thought out, but once it's there, we can not manage, but we can get it out of our minds. And that is the role of every faithful believer. So I just want to give our young man a couple tips and encourage you this morning. If you can't win your thought life, when the thoughts enter, speak the name of Jesus. The devil cannot stand the name of Jesus Christ. There have been seasons of my life where I just would say under my breath, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Or out loud, Jesus, Jesus, if I was by myself. Just say the name of Jesus. Here's another one. Every time you picture her body, whoever her is, picture instead the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for you. Instead of her body parts, picture his body parts, his nail-pierced hands, his flesh on back as ribbons, his pierced feet. Is this excessive, Pastor? I don't think so. The trajectory of so many people's lives have been changed because they left something unchecked in regard to their passions, pleasures. Um, There is no such thing, by the way, as an unimportant decision. There are seemingly unimportant decisions, but no actually unimportant decisions. That is to say that you should not, young men, be okay with tolerating small sins. 
because inevitably they will lead to great sins. Um, I will tell you that... uh, I'll just, I'll just tell you this. One time as a young man, thankfully I had a youth pastor that taught me this kind of stuff. So grateful. I asked my mother, I said, Mom, can you quit having that lingerie magazine sent to our home? It's just not good for me. I just find myself making a trip to the mailbox. It wasn't meant for me. It was meant for you. Can you find some other way to shop? <laughs> Seemingly unimportant. After all, they're not unclothed. But yet it was important. It was a mind issue that could grow into something out of hand. Are you dealing with the suds, gentlemen? Seemingly unimportant decisions. If you learn to control yourself, There is no limit to how and when God can use you. But God asks of us purity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, a lot in this text this morning, a little bit for for each of us. I just pray, Lord, that that you would... um, Give us no greater desire in life than to please you. I just pray, Lord, that every convention of man, every fad of culture, everything would just pale in comparison to you and and your asks of us. And that because of your grace, Lord, that we would respond in saying yes and and in doing the will of the one who sent us. We love you. You're faithful. You're so good. And I pray if there's anybody in here struggling with sin this morning, whether that's an an older woman with, with slander and gossip and negativity, or whether it's a younger woman who's tempted to lose her, her homeward focus, or whether it's an, an older man who's, who's tempted to coast and not engage in kingdom activity, or whether it's a younger man who's, who's got unbridled passion. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us that we would be hum, humble and not prideful, that we wouldn't resist your voice this morning, but we would do what it is that you're asking us to do for our own well-being. Lord, I pray that you would spare marriages this morning, that you would reverse paths this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.